If you haven't been paying attention, there's been a bit of a shakeup in Washington, D.C., and U.S. Representative John Shimkus of Southern Illinois had a first-hand view of the situation. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Joe Manis, also of St. Louis Public Radio. And making his second appearance on the show, we have as our special guest... Congressman John Shimkus from Illinois. I always love having Illinois people on our show because, as many people know, I'm a native Illinoisian. I grew up in what is now Robert Dold's district, Mark Kirk's district, Brad Schneider's the district. The Gold Coast. The Gold Coast. Um, uh-huh. Which is uh, which, which which is a way far away from here. Yeah, just just <laughs> just, just uh, give a quick reminder of where your district is before we start grilling you on issues. Okay, I'm a lifelong resident of Collinsville, Illinois. Fortunately, in the redistricting, I kept my house in the district. Uh, but uh, it, uh, the way I explain it is, if you go to the Illinois Indiana line and find the community of Danville, 33,000, yes. that is my largest community, and that's the farthest north I go for the most part, and then follow the, the border down to Kentucky to a town called Metropolis, mm-hmm. super, home of Superman, of course. Superman. And uh, and then, so that's the northern and the southern boundaries. You, then you would cross into Kentucky. And then if you go back to the center part of the state or where Illinois uh, 70 crosses the Illinois-Indiana line, town called Marshall, and take 70 all the way to Collinsville, that's my district. So, how many square miles is that? That's huge. Oh, square mileage. I don't. I don't have that off the top of my head. It's this large. It is thirty-three counties out of one hundred and two. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's parts. that's gigantic. It's probably the size of a small state. It is respect. definitely the size. It's a, larger it's, than Rhode Island. You could probably. I, I think it's <laughs> the largest congressional seat east of the Mississippi. Well, that is amazing. You should definitely uh, brag about that more often. <laughs> um, so. We want to talk about the shakeup that happened in Washington, D.C. recently for those who have been living under a rock recently. Uh, John Boehner resigned as Speaker of the House. Uh, there was kind of a strange leadership scramble, and eventually Paul Ryan became the Speaker of the House. And this was amid a huge fight over the debt ceiling, budget, just a number of things that were going on, a big there was there was a noticeable split within the Republican Party. So we want to know kind of you had a front row seat to all of this. What was kind of your perceptions of this kind of I don't want to say shocking turn of events because it's not as shocking as the Royals winning the World Series. Yeah, <laughs> but but just this this turn of events basically. Well, it, it's, it was I appreciate my constituents for allowing me to be in the room, right? Because I'm only have that seat because they elect me and send me back to Washington. So um, Paul Ryan eventually, uh, and I think the stories are accurate, uh, agreed kicking after we pulled him, kicking and screaming to consider being the speaker. I think he's the only one who could help us bridge the divide between the rank-and-file conservatives and the far-right conservatives, uh, the Freedom Caucus, who are to some extent sometimes chaotic (laughs) in their approach to governing. 
Uh, Paul has a good brand from being a vice presidential candidate, uh, his work on taxes and his uh, ability to articulate how conservatism is helpful to the everyday American citizen and if you want to be able to achieve and, and grow and, you know, have a job than conservative principles. So he was the right guy at the right time. Um, I'm not sure anybody else could have could have been able to to help unify us because these outside groups are were just ready for the next person's head to pop up. It was like whack a mole, and they would smack them. <laughs> <laughs> and these are our own. I mean, these are our own folks who are. Who are. I, I was going to say, because there was even some complaints from some conservative groups that Paul Ryan wasn't conservative enough, I guess, because of his views on immigration or maybe some of his other votes. But, you know, people on the other side of the spectrum have said that he might be one of the most conservative speakers of the House in history. Yeah, basically. Phyllis Lafley was very outspoken against him. So what did you kind of make of the fact that a person who was once held in very high regard by many conservatives was being essentially bashed over the head like a pinata by the, the some of the same groups, essentially. Yeah, I think his full total eventually uh, from the conference and then on the floor showed that he's still viewed very highly by conservatives. It is, again, the outside groups who uh, are influencing some members uh, to, and it's very curious. I mean, I think with a lot of us, if, if Paul Ryan's not good enough, then then really who is? Um, and the answer is not very many people. So yeah. uh, all I know is I think we put this behind us now uh, until you know the end of this Congress, and you know we have work to do. Uh, you know, Speaker Boehner did a pretty good job clearing the deck for Paul. Although so you voted against that budget deal, so I, was I like, did. Yeah, I was um, interested if you, in your take on that. Well, I, there's three there's three provisions that that I had concerns with. One is you're raising the debt again to from 18 to 19 trillion dollars. Eventually, you, you really got to stop doing this. I mean, we're still deficit spending. We we had a budget agreement that capped discretionary spending. It was working. Uh, the president wouldn't sign any bill unless it broke the caps. Uh, and this is the budget agreement agreed to break the spend the bust of spending caps. So that's the second reason. The third reason is it was put together pretty quick, within the last week of the the speaker's tenure. And the, uh, uh, to his credit, he did some entitlement reform to help offset some of the, for the, some of the pay force. But he also went out after the farm bill, which was recently passed, uh, and went after a couple billion dollars in the ag insurance process. And of course, people know my district, 33 counties yeah. in southern Illinois, corn and beans and pork. And it's really the livelihood of my congressional district. No. And so the uh, agriculture community was outraged. With, without using too much hyperbole, this seems to be like the 30th budget standoff that's occurred during the Obama presidency. It really isn't the 30th, but it is. There have been a lot, and they all seem very predictable at this point. It seems like at, at some point there's going to be this chaotic free fall into oblivion, and then suddenly there's a last-minute deal that you know, kind of puts it off for a few more months. Why do you think it keeps ending up being this way? And do you think it's going to continue after Obama leaves office? Well, um, uh, a point about the current budget deal that was agreed upon now, it, it, it is our hope that it will allow us to return to regular order. Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't mess with the debt ceiling until March 2017. Well, and not only that is, now that we have the numbers aligned with what the Senate and the House and the president, so the the overall numbers are set. 
now we can go back and finish the, the spending bills uh, that we we need to do until uh, September of next year. That's this first, and then we have the numbers for the next spending bill. I think the conservatives started to get their attention raised is that when we don't pass spending bills, appropriation bills, then we lose the ability to use the power of the purse to micromanage some of the, what we would say, egregious overreach Mm -hmm. of the federal government in some particular areas. Yeah. But I I guess the other thing that we had uh, former Senator Kit Bond here, I think a couple of weeks ago, I I, I assume that it's still in place where there's no earmarking anymore, or very little earmarking. Well, that's in the Senate, yeah. In the Senate? Yeah, there's no. Well, it would start, it would start in the House. I mean, Speaker yeah. Boehner was a, a, a strong, I mean, in fact, even when we had it, he never requested I, I just asked because as far as micromanaging where things go, it seems like taking that away probably put more power into the executive branch of where certain things are going. Is that your perception as well? You are exactly right. And there's a constitutional debate. You know, the Constitution says all spending begins in the House. So there is an argument that the people's elected representatives should have a say in how the money gets gets spent. Uh, now, a lot of it is just we uh, give money to an agency, and then the administration is able to direct the agency how to spend the money. So e- the even conservatives are very schizophrenic about this spending debate right now saying if you really believe in the constitution you probably should believe more in a, a more interventionist uh, house body that can be more directed yeah. in spending but now a, ryan yeah. did agree though to make i think some provisions not necessarily on earmarks but to give some more power to the um, committee chairman is that correct and some of the well, other there's two things, things. For, first of all on the appropriation and when you have the overall budget numbers, and you can allow the uh, appropriation chairman to move bills. And I kind of talked about that before. The second thing is there's this debate of regular order. Uh, You could argue that the budget agreement didn't go through regular order, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, McConnell, Boehner, the president, Reid got together, and they cut this deal, and then they said, in essence, vote for it. Some did, some didn't. The president signed it. You know, it's it's done. that's not regular order. Regular order is go through the, have a hearing on the budget, have a markup in the budget committee, have a markup uh, and vote on the floor. The Senate passes theirs. And, and we, in essence, kind of did that this year. That's how the whole reconciliation debate is, is that we did pass a budget. People get confused. They think, well, you passed a budget. Why can't you Why can't you stand by that? But a budget in the, in the federal government sense is not a law. Yeah. Right, right, because there's the appropriations. Because the appropriation is actually the spending measure. Yeah, so, so shifting gears a little bit, is it kind of surprising that the federal government has a budget, but the state of Illinois doesn't? <laughs> and and that's kind of my yeah. parley question. What do you kind of make of the lay of the land and the land of Lincoln since Rauner took office? Yeah, it's it's I, I know the governor well. I don't really... You know, spend much time with him. He's got enough on his hands right now. He didn't want to deal with me. Um, but listen, I, I I campaigned with him. I, I think what the people in Illinois said is we need uh, we need bipartisan leadership in Springfield. In other words, they'd experienced Democrat control of the House, Senate, and the governor's mansion. And we're in no better position because of that. So they gave Rauner a chance. To to as maybe be the adult in the room. Well, he's trying to uh, ex, you know get some major reforms to let Illinois be competitive again, and he's he's the pushback is between I would argue the most powerful speaker of the house uh, in the nation, which is Mike Madigan, who's, who's been, been speaker literally 
since before I was born, by the way, and except so, for one brief period in the 90s. So Continue. if the state of Illinois was dis, uh, is, is um, if not operating very well, and it's, you've had someone there 35 years, 40 years, and you've got a governor who's been there 10 months, Who's to blame, right? Yeah. Well, I want to play a clip, actually, from Bruce Rauner that I think you may have actually been there. He, he had a visit in March um, in the Metro East where he was talking about his, quote, unquote, turnaround agenda. And this was one of the items that he said was a priority at the time. I'm not sure if it still is in this budget standoff, but it involves uh, right to work. We do not need to be a right-to-work state. I do not support Illinois becoming a right-to-work state. However, we do need to be, make Illinois on the list. There are, there's a list of states that are right-to-work and there are a list of states that are closed shop. Many companies, many corporate employers from around America and around the world will only look to expand or move to uh, open, flexible states. Uh, Illinois is not on the list of open, competitive states. We need to get on the list. To do that, we just need a few counties or a few municipalities to decide to become uh, open employment, employment flexible areas. So there's a reason I played that clip, not necessarily for you to comment on the policy, but on the strategy. And so Illinois has a legislature, which is a supermajority Democratic majority. So the chances of getting any sort of right to work, let alone right to work by city or county, are probably negative a thousand, to be quite blunt. And for comparison, there is a supermajority Republican legislature in Missouri. They did pass right to work, but they couldn't get it over a legislative veto. So governor's veto. So my question is, is it just kind of a miscalculation for the Republican governor to propose something like this? when it really has no chance of, of passing and using it as a leverage point to get the budget done? Yeah. First, I think he really believes that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a core value of his. But I do think it's a it's an over-calculation. Love it. Like it or not, Illinois is a, a, a kind of a labor state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you highlight it, but the elected representatives and senators in, in the state. Uh, the point that, that I also like to raise in this in discussion about the state of Illinois is there are super majorities in the House and the Senate right now of, of the Democrats who could pass their own budget and override a pre, uh, governor's veto. That's true. So they can, they could do it. So yeah. the question is, why aren't they? Is why? it be, is it because it, that budget would have to include a tax increase potentially? That because there was a tax increase that expired. That's correct. And it was actually a very large tax increase. Right. It was not an insignificant one. Right. And I think that's pretty much the reason why there's a hole in the budget. So is that kind of the reason they don't want to kind of get the blame for that, essentially? Oh, I'm sure you'll bring in some uh, Democrat oh. state reps oh, and I'm state sure senators, and you can ask them. I, I, um, I do think, that's in my simplistic view, sure. I, I do think that if uh, the, they would get to a table and the governor would say, I'll, I'll reinstate that tax increase if we promise not to spend more money and we get some worker comp reform. Yeah. So. I think I think that's I think that's a deal that should be able to be struck. Now, as a congressman, and of course you're in Washington, and I've asked some of this of Republican congressmen over here. Conversely, where you see a lot of turmoil going on in your state at the same time, you're dealing with a whole different set of issues in D.C. Does the turmoil in Springfield affect what you're doing in um, Washington or not? I mean, as far as you 
as a member of Congress from Illinois? That's a great question. First of all, I think it makes Washington look a little bit better right now <laughs> than usually. We're the ones that are dysfunctional, and now right, Springfield looks fairly dysfunctional. So, um, But on there are issues that in this turmoil right now, we're dealing with the long-term highway bill. Yeah. It's very important and you know because that's passed through from the state. Our projects need to be on the in Illinois Department of Transportation five-year plan. The other thing is health care costs. And the, and the struggle because the state of Illinois, because of Medicaid, and it's a 50-50, they manage that program. They send the – it's – when they're not paying the bill, and I deal a lot in healthcare public policy, that just puts more pressure when these healthcare folks – and they could be disease groups. They could be Medicaid. They could be the hospitals, uh, physician groups. They, they're looking to us to try to help balance their books when it's really a dysfunction of the state. Now, has Medicaid expansion been a plus or minus for Illinois, in your view? Oh, that is a, uh, that's a great question. I would, I, I think that, um, I think the jury's still out because we still have a lot of uninsured and we still have more people using the emergency room. And the hospitals thought that emergency room use would go down. And it's actually gone up. Really? Yeah. Why? I think that uh, this medical home and, and the ability of uh, uh, family practitioners, internists, to be able to hook into the, the health care uh, delivery system. Now we're on the third year of the enrollment process. We'll see. Uh, costs are going up. Uh, uh, you've got uh, deductibles and, and co-pays going up. And we'll see. I think enrollment numbers are going to be a lot. Uh, they're going to be down this year in, in really a third year where they should be up. Now, I wanted to also turn to something that is kind of in your wheelhouse, the NGA project. Um, as for our listeners, NGA stands for? National Geospatial Agency, Agency I think. Yeah. So th- right now it's basically between two sites, North St. Louis and Scott Air Force Base. And I want to play a clip from Mary Ellen Ponder, who's the chief of staff for Mayor Francis Slay, kind of giving her take on why this facility should remain in St. Louis proper. We're relentless, you know, that 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 they can they can put that out there. But we think we have a great plan. And, you know, the the president's administration and past presidents have really uh, um, brought home the importance of staying in the urban core. And so we're going to fight as hard as we can to keep it here. But I imagine, though, that Illinois officials are fighting as hard as they can to possibly bring that to Scott Air Force Base. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, as I well? think it's a very sure. I think especially my kudos to the local community, Sinclair County, who is all they've always been kind of forward in the foxhole as far as uh, looking at how they can be uh, competitive. Um, you know, if this is if this is a debate about return on investment, dollar saved, security. And, and national security, I, I don't think there's there's really no debate. If this turns into a debate of uh, re, reinvigorating the urban core, um, buying people out of their homes, some who don't want to go, um, but for the good of the whole, I, I then I think there's the other debate. But if it's basically on taxpayers' dollars, local security, uh, warfighter security, <laughs> it's... There, there's not a decision to be made here. I, I think it's a. Uh, what do you mean by local security exactly? Well, you're, you're, a guy, you're at Scott Air Force Base. You've got the, the fence line there. You'll have an additional fence line. You've got the military right there. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about local security as far as, I mean, the National Geospatial Agency. It's it used to be called defense mapping. Yes. It is. They are the real deal. I mean, they're doing 
getting real-time information to our warfighters, and they could be in the on the ridge lines of Afghanistan. So, um, do you, uh, well, just kind of also asking uh, a more long-term question: If if NGA picks Scott Air Force Base, do you think that would pretty much secure that base's future for the next thirty or forty years? Because it's occasionally been on the the chopping block over the decades. It seems like this would probably take it off the chopping block permanently. Is that a I, fair assumption? I, I think that's fair assumption, too. I mean, we, we have the major commands, and my friend Jerry Costello and I were in that yes. fight a long time, exactly. and, Jerry, and Mel Price going back days earlier. Yes, I wrote about that. I was in the Washington Bureau back then. So uh, all good friends, all did their part, but I do think that kind of then solidifies it. Well, what do you make of uh, Mary Ellen Ponder's assessment that the Obama administration has tended to place some of these headquarters in the urban core as opposed to... I guess the exurbs or the the are such as Scott Air Force Base. I I can't argue with her analysis. I think that's a fairly uh, good debate. I would say that there are encumbrances in the in that site, and that's willing sellers, willing buyers, uh, clear titles. Uh, there's a huge additional cost that you do not have over in St. Clair County. Because I guess you're building the, the St. Clair County site basically on a field, essentially, as opposed to having to build it in a urban footprint. That's, that's my assessment. That's exactly right. And, and the interchanges are already being developed for easy access to that facility. Now, we saw last week that the St. Louis area leaders are united on this, the mayor, the county executive, the congressman. Would you say that the Illinois side is also united maybe with the, the two senators, the congressional delegation, the local delegation? What's kind of that unity like uh, right I now? think we're 100 percent unified, and I bet it could even get Governor Rauner and Mike Maddox <laughs> unified. That might be what brings Actually, them to the table. Might they, get, might they get involved at the end in the wooing or not? Um, I don't—I think the—I don't know what else the state could bring to the table. Okay. I mean, it's— uh, it's a pretty sweet deal if you want to uh, have a good return on investment of taxpayers' dollars and, and all these other areas. At that same press conference, I played that other rounder clip. He also mentioned he was very enthused and he would work toward getting the NGA site in St. Clair County. He also said he was enthused about possibly building a football stadium in uh, <laughs> east, east of the Mississippi River, but that looks like it's not going to happen at this point. So at, at, at this point, here we are. Um, just beginning November 2015, heading into 2016. What's your assessment of what some of the major issues will be that you will be dealing with? And also keeping in mind, you already have a primary challenger in State Senator Kyle McCarter. So this might be a more vigorous election cycle than usual. Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, again, uh, big district, conservative. I'm very comfortable there, and people have been very kind to me, and we look forward. We're Republicans. We don't shy away from competition, and we look forward to putting my record on. Uh, it's actually been a very kind of cool legislative year for me already. Um, yeah, I'm now senior enough where I can, I'm a subcommittee chair. I'm very active in the full committee stuff. Now, you got to, as you know, you, you come from the committee at which you're spending most of your time. So that's the Energy and Commerce Committee, yeah, uh, very active. You. And then I do, uh, I sub, I'm a subcommittee chairman on environment and the economy in which we've uh, we already have done some algae blossom stuff, some coal ash provisions that we hope to get somewhere moved. Um, we uh, we are also involved with uh, high level nuclear waste provisions, and uh, which also is a big issue here because of some of the stuff left over from World yeah, War II. Yeah, well, I've been following very closely, and and uh, you, here is not unique. I mean, we have these locations all over the the country, and uh, closing the nuclear fuel cycle and the and really the uh, 
the high-level nuclear waste, which is uh, some of the really nasty defense stuff, uh, we we should be by law moving that to a mountain in a desert. Yeah, okay. uh, where they used to set <laughs> oh, off nuclear I'm, explosions. I'm, I'm, I'm so. sure. I'm sure the minority leader of the Senate is thrilled about that. But is there any other? He situa- is the minority leader, and he's also announced his retirement. That's so. true. But is there any other situation where there's like a smoldering? fire burning at the landfill close to the radioactive site? I don't know about that, but there is, uh, I mean, there's, the the country is, has many, many sites where yeah. we have, uh, and then the question is, the the smoldering fire in the landfill portion of the big area, which I visited years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, um, then the question is, which is in the environmental realm, EPA and stuff is, Moving it, um, right? Yeah. What, is it more what, dangerous to move what it? What yeah. it? Right. But, but going back to your your reelection, do you think that outside groups are going to get involved against you? Because this this is a situation where the Republican primary is essentially the election, and I think that's the big question here about whether it's going to be competitive or not. Yeah, I, I, I guess the question will be how these different groups, and there's a there's a lot of them out there, so you don't you don't know how do they define conservatism and how do they uh, define whether you've done work. I, I, I don't worry about that. I just worry about making sure I'm available and accessible and around my district and let people uh, see, who, you know, uh, see who they have as their members. And they've been very kind to me, and I, I don't expect uh, that they're going to turn their back to me. So we only have five minutes left, so a couple other election things. Yeah, well, one thing, but this is kind of tied to that. What do you see as the biggest issue going to be facing the Republican leaders in the House, and conversely yourself, going into 2016. And, of course, that does affect the politics as well. Well, that's why I think uh, Speaker Banner did a great job for Paul, because I think uh, a lot of it, how this would be portrayed in the presidential line of whether we can actually operate. Are we dysfunctional? Can we pass a budget? Can we pass spending bills? And now we're on the we're on the move to do that. I think is very, very helpful in in the presidential cycle. Now the, the day, debate will turn to maybe tax reform and health care reform. I think Paul, uh, Speaker Ryan, has said we've got to put bold agendas, conservative agendas, on the floor for people to make a determination of whether our policies will help raise up people instead of stifle them. Is there anything in particular that you want him to push, so that that you'll promote as you run? Well, tax reform is always a, a good one because a fair, flat, or simpler tax code is what many of us have always talked about. And the question is, how do, how do you get there? Um, and there's also been, the, and that's for the individuals. I like the individual side. But on corporate side, if you want to help address a level playing field with the corporations in, in other countries, which is our major uh, competitor, we've got to get the corporate rate down because it's too high. It's 35 percent, 25 in other countries. We need to get that down. And that's that lowering the rate, spreading out the base and, and things that are talked about, and I think that would be helpful. Are you endorsing anybody for president at this point? I am point? not at this time. There's too many out so there. So you're not a Trump Trump supporter yet? I, I, am, I have no endorsement to any candidate yeah. right now. Yeah. So now, now, on this side of the state, most of the, I mean, in Missouri, most of the members of Congress have been backing Jeb Bush. Uh, do you think, okay, if you're not endorsing anybody, uh, do you plan to stick that way, at least till your party picks a nominee, and B, does the does the fight within the Republican ranks affect um, as you are trying to run for reelection and and you do have a primary rival? Does that affect things or trickle down? Yeah, I don't I don't see that right now. I do you know this our my election will be the same one as the election for delegates in the, in our presidential race mm-hmm. over in Illinois. So I mean there'll be 
people being pulled to the polls one way or the other to vote in that. And so if there's a spinoff there or not, I, I'm not sure. Um, I think, um, you know, the Illinois members of Congress, we got a couple of them out there. You know, one's out there for Bush. We've got two who are flirting with Rubio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of us have kind of said it's too chaotic right now and, yeah. and not settled. Now, the big election that's going to be in November in Illinois is the U.S. Senate race. Mark Kirk is seen as the most endangered incumbent in the entire country. Do you think he pulls it off? Yeah. How would you like to be <laughs> labeled as that? That's well, no, he barely, that's not a good place he, to be. He barely won in 2010. It is Illinois, and, too, yeah. and it wasn't a presidential year. And for a presidential year in Illinois, there's going to be a bigger turnout. So that, by definition alone, makes him a very endangered incumbent. He's working hard. He's uh, for the state of Illinois. Uh, he, he cast a moderate profile, which helps him up in the Chicago land and the suburbs. It doesn't help him real well <laughs> down in my neck of the woods. Yeah, in and fact, he's, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, and he's uh, cast some stuff that's really caused a lot of my constituents to roll their eyes. Anything in particular? Probably yes. In, probably involving guns, I would assume. <laughs> no. Wait, wait, no. <laughs> to continue. Uh, for, for, well, I mean, I, I'm not— I, I, I mean, you're just being objective here. Yeah, I I think we continue to watch. I think he did come on board finally on uh, climate, and I mean, he's he plays both sides on this. He wants to be, you know, a green um, senator, but also down in my area, it's fossil fuels. I mean, okay. you've got to speak fossil fuel language, and you've got to be all in. Yeah, Either coal or marginal oil or or the like. So I think that's one where. People are watching very closely. But I, I, I know there is, has been a little bit of chatter about somebody else should take his place, but I'm not really sure there's another Republican that could win a statewide U.S. Senate election other than a moderate one from my neck of the woods. Is that your assessment I as think well? That, I think that's true, and that would have to be someone who's got statewide name ID and has been around, and I think that's and why he's still to, our best candidate. And they'd have to move pretty quickly because you've got oh, the, yeah, we're done. the primary coming up. And, if, they're not, if they're not out by now, they're right. not coming. All right. It is 1045. I know you have to catch a flight. Thank you very much for for joining us today. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Jay Rosenbaum is how you follow me on Twitter. Joe, you can be followed on Twitter at? Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you're on Twitter at? Rep Shimkus. All right. Thank you very much. Until next week. So long. Has Black Widow ever been buried alive? Does Hawkeye even know how to turn out the lights? How many casket matches is I? At the Red Skull got a turn, so he'd be totally done. If Thanos used the Infinity Gauntlet to capture the rest of the team, oh, the Undertaker used the